0: When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he only went as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathach, one of the king's eunuchs, assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hathach went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay in the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had to be published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to urge her to go into the king's presence, to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hey, Hathach went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that he be put to death. The only exception is to this is for the king to extend the gold scepter to him and spare his life. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish." So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions.
1: Well, the setting for this whole episode is a place called Susa, which, if you remember from previous weeks, was actually the capital city of the vast Persian Empire. And inside the city of Susa, on the western side, was a hill. And up on the hill, about 120 feet above everything else, was the palace of King Xerxes. It was a vast complex. It housed all the high-ranking officials, the government ministers, all the chief advisors to the king. So the palace was very much the power base of the whole empire. Flowing from it would have been all the laws and all the ideas that shaped the entire culture. To be inside was to be at the very pinnacle of that society. And it's at the gate Of this particular palace that we find Mordecai right at the beginning of this chapter. He's dressed in sackcloth and ashes so as to try and attract the attention of those on the inside. More specifically he's trying to attract the attention of his cousin Esther who just so happens to live in the palace. Now what I want you to catch today is something of the significance of Esther's position. So we work through this passage that's just been read to us. There are three main things I want you to grasp. First of all, the importance of being in the palace. Second, the high danger of being in the palace. And third, the key to surviving in the palace. First thing I want you to catch is this, the the importance of being in the palace. As we saw last time, we looked at this story. There were powerful forces, powerful influences at work, within the Persian Empire to persuade the king to make a decree that every Jew, man, woman, and child in the whole empire would be annihilated on a set day. And so Mordecai, who was part of the whole Jewish community, he sends word to Esther, his cousin, and says, who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. Esther, because of where you are, You have got to use your influence. You've got to use your place in the palace to bring an end to this injustice. You've got to do something. Here's the main thing I want you to see today. God places people in positions of responsibility in secular society for a purpose, for a reason. If you remember... We saw exactly the same thing when we worked through the book of Daniel this time last year. We also saw it when we studied the life of Joseph at the beginning of this year. God uses people out there in the secular public world. You know, it can be tempting, can't it, to see a divide, a division between church and our work. But I'm increasingly convinced that we need to break down that divide. As Christians, we have a crucially important role in shaping all of culture. And if this is to happen, we dare not devalue our jobs. We need to see our workplaces mission fields and begin asking questions like, what does God want me to do in my workplace? How can I serve God effectively through my job? What does it look like to be a Christian in this context, in this environment? don't know about you, but I find it interesting at least. There are three different books in the Bible that describe this whole period in history when God's people are finally given permission to return from exile and start rebuilding Jerusalem. First up, you have the book of Ezra. And Ezra is all about a teacher of God's word because the Jews desperately needed to be reacquainted with the truth of the word of God so their lives would be shaped by what God said. Then you also have the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah was a wine taster, come urban developer. And he uses his management skills, if you like, to oversee the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem and to reinstate economic and social stability. And then thirdly, you have Esther, And Esther is right there in the palace, in the seat of power, with the opportunity to work for social justice. Without each of these three very different characters, nothing would have happened. You've got male and female. You've got people working with God's people, and people working right in the midst of a pretty pagan culture. You've got people who are called to bring spiritual maturity an economic stability, and a change in the whole social order. And God is using each of them. Application. You see how important it is for believers to be everywhere. We can have this view, can't we, that if you're really spiritual, you'll work for the church. That's nonsense. Absolute nonsense. We certainly believe in the importance of the local church. The example of Ezra is such that people need to be instructed, they need to be taught the word of God if they're to survive out there in the world. We believe in the importance of the local church. We're fully committed here to to building a vibrant, God-glorifying church in this part of the city and then multiplying what we do as we open up new sites right across Birmingham. But our influence really must go way beyond our buildings and our meetings. We've got to have a tangible effect on the society around us. And that means that as individuals, we need to start taking responsibility for the environments in which God has placed us, our workplaces, our university campuses, our streets, our schools. And through our actions and through our lifestyle, and through our words, and our attitudes, we're to make a difference. It's like we are all called to change the section of the world that we inhabit. All of us are called to be a positive influence, and to model righteousness, and to champion justice, and to demonstrate something of the tremendous power and relevance of the gospel to the world around us. Now, in saying all of this, you need to understand this isn't a bright new idea. This isn't a new initiative or innovation. Way back at the beginning of time, in Genesis chapter 1, we see that this was a core component of what we were made to do in the first place. If you remember, on the sixth day, God created man, and he instructed him to fill the earth and subdue it. Now, clearly... The call to fill the earth was a specific command for Adam and Eve to have children. From the very beginning, it was God's intention that the whole earth be filled with people who bear his image and represent something of his handiwork. Now today, several thousand years on, there are seven billion people alive on the planet. So you could be forgiven for thinking, maybe we've filled it enough now. However... Many of those living on earth today don't know their creator. And it's pretty tragic But God's image in them has been marred by sin. That's why Jesus came. He didn't come to start a religion. He, started, he came to start a relationship. And through his death and through his resurrection that we're singing about and celebrating earlier on, relationship with God has been restored. And as we grow in this relationship... We get to become more like him. We're changed again as the song came earlier. We're changed as we get closer to him, become more like him. And now his commission to each of us is to bring others into relationship with him too. If you like, we're to reproduce spiritual children and we're to disciple them so they take on more of the likeness of Jesus as well. It's part of what it means for us today to fill the earth but we're also called to subdue the earth. And this term subdue is an incredibly rich word. It speaks of cultivating. It speaks of protecting. It speaks of taking responsibility and bringing order to the situation around us. If you remember, way back in the beginning, Adam was placed in the garden and told to cultivate it. And thousands of years on, I'd suggest our call remains the same. Each of us is called by God to cultivate the environment around us for the glory of God. If you like, each of us is to take responsibility for bringing order to the world, the situation, the context around us. So God's creation mandate remains the same today. You are to draw out more of the beauty of creation. Or to use other language, another analogy, one that Jesus himself used. You are to be salt and light. So I want you to see that we have a God-given responsibility that goes way, way, way beyond simply building churches and winning the lost. The Gospel needs to work its way into all areas of society. It's as though each of us is called to shape the whole of creation. No part of this world should be beyond the reach of God's rule. No inch of creation should escape his redeeming power. Now, if you're getting this, if you're understanding the magnitude of what I'm saying, the implications are absolutely huge. The breadth of this commission is immense. It is all-encompassing. And it requires all of us to play our part, play our part using our different backgrounds and our different talents and our different passions to bring about transformation in the part of the world that we exist in. For some, it may be by becoming an outstanding worker for your employer. I don't know, maybe acting with integrity, being true to your word, being a team player. It might be as simple as refusing to gossip in the office or refusing to constantly be grumbling and complaining. For others, it may mean visiting an elderly neighbour or being a positive influence amongst other parents and other teachers at the local school. When Helen and I first moved to Birmingham 14 years ago, we started a neighborhood watch scheme that, in some small way, made the area feel a bit more secure to live in. And it also broke down some of the divides between the different ethnic communities that lived on our street. Do you see? This can be worked out in so many different ways. Perhaps a good start is to simply ask ourselves the question, how can I personally cultivate the area of the world? in which God has placed me? How does this apply to me? What could I start doing where I am? I want to share with you a couple of stories of people who went about answering this very question in their generation. First of all, I want to take you back to 1787. A man called Josiah Wedgwood really got hold of this whole principle I'm talking about today. This well-known and influential businessman created a range of hat pins and brooches for fashionable women. And they bore an emblem of an African slave in chains linked with a provocative slogan back then, Am I not a man and a brother? Now within three years, thousands of these have been distributed. Wedgwood's contribution to the world of fashion became a significant factor in raising public awareness for the society of the abolition of slavery. John Cadbury would be another great example of someone who sought to use his influence to change society. Back in the 1820s, the water here in Birmingham, which even now doesn't taste great, but back then it was so polluted that people chose to drink gin in large quantities instead. As a result, true story, as a result, this city was plagued by drunkenness, which in turn led to much poverty and high levels of crime. So Cadbury took it upon himself to find a solution. And so he established a business providing cocoa and chocolate as alternatives to alcohol. Hands up if you are glad he made that invention. Yeah, pretty much unanimous. For many years, the whole Cadbury family was actively involved in social reform. They they campaigned against the use of children to clean chimneys. They fought for the rights of the underprivileged they set very high standards for the care of their workers, paying generous salaries, providing education, health care, even pension schemes. For half a century, they even ran Bible readings and morning prayers for their workers. And then, in the late 1890s, John Cadbury's sons, they got together and they thought to themselves, there must be more we can do. And so, they decided to purchase a large plot of land... And they chose to build affordable housing with space for gardens and trees to be inhabited by employees and non employees alike. That's how Bourneville came into being. One of the more desirable parts of this city, even today. Now, for them, by taking responsibility and striving to be salt and light, the Cadbury family had a remarkable and a lasting impact in this city. Not all of you, by any stretch of the imagination, but at least some of you are called to work in the equivalent of the palace. Like Esther, and like Wedgwood, and like Cadbury, God is going to position some of you in places of significant responsibility. Some of you, you're actually in those positions already. You might not realise it, You might not be at the very pinnacle of your profession, but already you do carry real influence. Others here will end up in those kinds of positions at some point in the future, 10, 20, 30 years' time, still climbing the career ladder or thinking which career to choose. For some of you, it will come. Here's what I want you to see. Whether you're at this point now or for you to store it away for the day when it happens, here's what I want you to see. It is not merely so you can feather your own nest. It isn't just for your own prestige and glory. In the words of Mordecai to Esther, you need to take your position for such a time as this. It's as though this world needs you. Now, some of you perhaps feel like you're only there by the skin of your teeth. You you feel you could be thrown out at any point. Others of you feel like you've got into the position you have, but you've kind of compromised your faith along the way. Maybe you've done some shady things, and yeah, you've got some clout, yeah, you carry real responsibility, but it doesn't feel like your conscience is completely clear. Do you think Esther's was? Just read the first couple of chapters of, of this book. As wasn't. It's never too late. God comes and says, realize where you are. Realize the importance of being in the equivalent of the palace. And if you haven't done it before now, I will start using you now. If you're willing to hear the call. So first of all, We see the importance of being in the palace. We need to be people who shape culture. And if this is to happen, we dare not devalue our jobs. We need to see our workplaces as mission fields. We need to start asking the question, what does God want to do in my workplace? And even more so, for those of us who carry greater responsibility, greater influence, we need to be asking that kind of question regularly. Secondly, however, we also see in this passage something of the high danger of being in the palace. Verse 10, Then Esther instructed the messenger to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that he be put to death. The only exception to this is, is for the king to extend the gold scepter to him and spare his life. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. She's saying, Do you know what you're asking here? You are asking me to potentially throw everything away. But Mordecai sends a message straight back saying he is fully aware what he's asking. Effectively, he says. If you don't risk losing the palace, you stand to lose everything. Verse 13, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. Now, to be fair, we are not in the identical situation to this at all, at least I don't think any of us find ourselves in the exact same life situation as this one. However, if we stand back from this and just try to generalize a little bit, I think there are two remarkable principles here that do apply to us. First thing Mordecai is saying here is this. Unless you use the clout that you've got, unless you start using the connections you've got, unless you start using the money you've got, and you don't think it's very much because you're in denial, but relatively speaking, you have got a lot, and instead of seeing that as just a way to further your career or feather your own nest, but instead seeing it as a way of service to the people outside the palace, and as a means of working for God's glory more and more, and being like salt, And being like light, unless you see this, unless you wake up to this, then it is is as though the palace, or the equivalent of the palace, has devoured you. And you're as good as dead already. You better be willing to risk it, or it's destroyed you. In Luke 16, there's the famous parable of Lazarus and the rich man. You know, Lazarus goes to heaven... The rich man goes to hell. Now, whether or not you're familiar with that parable, that story, the main thing I want you to notice is this. This is the only parable, the only story of Jesus, where someone is given an actual proper name. Lazarus gets a proper name. The rich man doesn't. Why not? I think the answer is, it's a literary device to get a point across. The rich man is his name. He's a rich man or he's nothing. He's a rich man or he's no one. You know, it's possible to so root your identity in your position in the palace, to to root your significance in the fact that you've got money. I I can wear these kind of clothes. I can go to these kinds of places. I I can get this kind of respect from others. I, I carry this kind of power. That's who I am. Your net worth is your self-worth. And when that starts to happen, it starts eating you. And in the end, there's no you left if you lose your riches, or if you lose your job, or if you lose that prestige. It's like your riches have taken you over. Your career has taken you over. You've been co-opted. I think the great danger facing everyone who lives in the equivalent of the palace is that you end up getting your identity from your performance and your position. I tell you, if you're rising or one day start rising up the corporate ladder, you're going to face this temptation the whole time. And unless you're careful, you can end up buying the lies that if you have this kind of CV... And if you have this kind of money and if you drive this kind of car and if you have this kind of reputation, then I'm somebody. I've made it. It's eaten you. There's no you left to use it. That's why there's ethical shading. Really, no, I oughtn't do that. Really should speak up about that. But I don't want to harm my chances of getting up the ladder. Or When it comes to giving... We we give a little bit here and there, but 10%, 20%, 30% of our income, radical giving, really helping those outside the palace. We don't want to do that because it jeopardises our place and the lifestyle that we've got. This is what I think Mordecai's saying. If you are unwilling to risk your place in the palace, it's taken you over, it's eaten you, It's as though you're the tail, and it's the dog, and it's wagging you. Some years ago, I was in another church context, and I got chatting with a lady who was visiting. She was there for the first time. She told me she was exploring Christianity. She didn't believe it at that point, but she was at least intrigued by it. I asked her why she was there, who, who had invited her along. This is a story she told me in her own words. She said... Not too long ago in my job, I made a pretty big mistake and it could, it should have cost me my job. But she told me, my boss took the hit for me. He went in and took complete responsibility for what I did. And to some degree, she said, it was true. He was complicit in the whole thing but there was absolutely no way that he had to put his hands up and take responsibility for what I had done. He could have come out of the whole thing with his reputation completely intact, but he went in there, he chose to go in there, and he took the hit for me. And although, in the end, he ended up not losing his job, there was the very real possibility he could have lost his job. And I was amazed, and so... I went and I saw him and asked why he'd done it. I mean, she said, I've often seen my supervisors take credit for what I've done. I've never seen a supervisor take the blame for something I've done. I've seen people, like, parasitically use what I've done to advance their own career, but I've never seen someone jeopardise their career because of something I've done. So I asked him why he'd done it and she told how he was very modest and just just told me to forget it i wouldn't let it drop i wanted to know what made him so different and finally she said he told me that he was a christian and because jesus christ took the blame for him he where appropriate has the ability to take the blame for others and this woman explained that that was why she had ended up in that church meeting she was intrigued wanted to know more. Here's what this woman was sensing. This guy, her boss, had a capital that wasn't rooted in the palace, and therefore the palace hadn't devoured him. He could use the palace, but it was just a tool. Didn't define him, it wasn't him. He had a sense of value rooted in something or someone else, and that's the reason Well, he was able to say, I'll I'll tell the truth about what happened. Uh, In doing so, I'll potentially jeopardize my whole career. And if I perish, well, then I perish. Can you do that? Have you got that? Mordecai's first point is, if you can't at least risk throwing away the palace in order to do good for others, then it's devoured you. So how do you... Get an identity that's rooted in something other than your equivalent of the palace? I think the answer is this through grace. It's through understanding and experiencing God's grace. Second thing that Mordecai says is who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. Now, that word come would be better translated brought. Who knows, but you have been brought to royal position for such a time as this. Here's what he's saying. You didn't get here except by grace. Esther, your beauty isn't something you have earned. It was given to you. And this door of opportunity isn't something that you alone have produced. It's all because of God. It's because of his favour, on you. Now, of course, Esther could have argued back, just as we might be tempted to argue back, you don't know how hard I've worked. You don't know all the sacrifices I've made to get to this position. But the reality is, you've worked with talents that you didn't earn. They were given to you. Uh, And you went through doors of opportunities that you you didn't produce. They, They opened to you. And therefore, everything that you have right now is a matter of grace. The fact that you carry the responsibility you do is ultimately down to God's grace to you. It's his unmerited favour on your life. Now, if you get this, if you grasp what I'm saying, you can be like Esther. You won't be so fearful of losing everything that you refuse to put God first. You'll be free to use the influence he has given you for his glory. Now, we could end at that point. And some of you, I can see, are secretly wishing I would end at that point. But we can't. You see, there is a danger that some of you, a few of you, might actually be inspired by this talk. You might be inspired by Esther's example here. You might go away from here and try to do what she did. Some of you might be thinking, even now, I'm not going to look at my position and my intellect and my social skills and my financial capital the same way anymore. I'm not going to look at it just as a means for me getting ahead in life. From now on, I'm going to see it as a means of serving other people. I'm going to start taking a few more risks. Others of you might be thinking, well, I'm challenged on this. I've been far too quiet about my faith. I've been far too afraid to let anyone know what I believe. So I'm going to start speaking up. I'm going to start letting people know I'm a Christian. Here's the danger in this. Number one, it won't last. It won't last. If you get inspired by an example, "I, I want to be more like Esther. It won't last. Because the basic motivation is one of guilt. Guilt over my selfishness guilt over my sense of elitism or whatever. And experience teaches, in the end, it will wear off. It won't be long before you revert to living as you were before. It won't last. Or well, the other thing that might happen is you get all inspired about this and you overreact. I've seen it happened so many times that the people who have been secret about their faith go to the other extreme altogether and end up getting all obnoxious and in your face about their beliefs, kind of marching into the office first thing Monday morning and preaching at everyone. It's like they're still getting their identity from their performance. Well, previously, it was all about their position in the palace. Now it's about how overt they can be as a Christian and how many of their friends they can invite along to things. Listen, in the end... An example, even a great example, can only crush you. It's crushing because it is an inaccessible standard. I mean, when you see here what what Esther did, when you see what she did in the rest of the story, it'll end up leaving you feeling condemned because you could never live up to that. But fortunately, there is another way. We've seen the importance of being in the palace. We've seen the high danger of being in the palace Thirdly and finally, and very quickly, I want to just look at the key to surviving in the palace. How do we actually apply this in a healthy way in our own situation? Let me tell you how you can change. What if you didn't merely see Esther as an example? What if you saw her as a signpost or a pointer? What do you to think about it. Esther saved her people through identification and mediation. In other words, she identified with her people. She didn't choose just to play it safe. Her people were condemned, and so she identified herself with them, and she risked her life to save them. She said, if I perish, I perish. And because she identified herself with them, she was then able to mediate on their behalf. She did what no one else could do, She came before the throne. And because she received favor there, that favor was granted. It was imputed to all her people. Does that remind you of anybody else? Jesus Christ lived in the ultimate palace. He was and is the Son of God. He had the ultimate beauty, he had the ultimate glory and he left it. No one had to pressurize him. No one had to cajole him or manipulate him or twist his arm into doing it. He did it willingly. He did it freely. Philippians chapter 2 says that although he had equality with the Father, he didn't hold on to it, didn't grasp onto it. Rather, he emptied himself and came to earth in order to identify with us taking on our condemnation, our guilt, our shame. And he didn't do it merely at the risk of his life. He did it at the cost of his life. He didn't merely say, if I perish, I perish. He said, when I perish, I perish. And he went to the cross. There he died. And he was crushed. And through his death, He made atonement for our sins. So that now the Bible says he stands before the throne of the universe and the favour he has secured, the favour he's procured is ours. If we believe in him, it's ours. Here's my point. If you merely see Esther as an example and say, be like her, then it will crush you. You'll never live up to it. But if you see Jesus as your saviour, not as an example doing something for others, but as a saviour doing it for you, and so now you know with absolute certainty that you're that valuable to him. You know your future is absolutely secure in his hands. That changes your identity. There's your security right there. There's your value in life. There is your real eternal worth. And suddenly, all the other things in your life become just stuff. It's not you anymore. You're free to have it and possess it and own it and use it and risk it and spend it and lose it. You know, Esther was able to do what she did just on the basis of the much more vague understanding that God is a God of grace. And she did what she did, knowing just what she knew. But today, we know so much more. We've experienced so much more. She didn't know that God was actually going to come to earth himself and do what she was doing, only on an infinitely greater scale and at an infinitely greater cost to himself and of infinitely greater benefit to us. So what's our excuse? If she did what she did, knowing what she knew, and we know so much more, we know so much more about our value to him, and about his grace to us, and about our security in the future, what's our excuse? Application. If you now see what Jesus has done for you, if you see him losing the ultimate palace for you, then and only then will you, from your place in your equivalent of the palace, really start to work to heal the world around you. Only then will you have that freedom. Now some of you have been brought into high positions. Others of you will at some point in the future find yourself carrying far more responsibility than you ever dreamt possible. But wherever you are right now, all of you have certain gifts and certain abilities and certain experiences that make you uniquely equipped to help certain people in the world that no one else can help but you. Ephesians 2 says, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. You notice how at the end of our worship earlier, people were contributing, praying, reading passages about that kind of thing. God has prepared specific things for us to do. Each one of us has a role to play in God's purposes. You have been crafted with your gifts and your strengths, even your weaknesses. There are certain things that God has called you to do. You have been brought into the position that you are in right now for such a time as this. And today, God is commissioning you to go and play your part. Whether you're a bus driver, or a road sweeper, or a teacher, or a lollipop lady, or a full-time mum, or a politician, or a doctor, or a shelf stacker, or a receptionist, or an engineer, or a musician, or a care worker, or the chief executive of a multinational company, or some other position that I haven't listed because we don't want to be here all day, you nonetheless have an important part to play. Each and every one of these roles does have significance in God's overarching eternal plan to restore the world. I tell you, the potential in this room today is enormous. I am genuinely excited about everything that God will achieve through all of us as together we commit ourselves to being salt and light in the world. And it's my hope and it's my dream that as a church, our names will be deemed worthy to be listed alongside the nation changes of past generations as together each of us strives bring God's rule to bear on all of his creation.